This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash be here now today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash be here now. Welcome to the Be Here Now Network guest podcast. This series features talks from a myriad of modern spiritual teachers expanding on how we can all live a life in balance. If you're interested in supporting this podcast, please go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash guest. Welcome to episode two of my podcast, sponsored by the Be Here Now Podcast Network. I'm Joseph Bobro. My guest today is Roshi Wendy Egyoku Nakao. Egyoku currently serves as head teacher and head priest of Zen Center of Los Angeles. From 1999 through 2009, she served as its abbot. Egyoku, which means essence of jewel, first encountered Zen practice in 1975 when she did a seven-day seshin, a Zen retreat, on a dare. Following this plunge, she also did intensive vipassana and shambhala practice, and in 1978 found her way to ZCLA. In 1983, Egyoku ordained with Maizumi Roshi and trained with him until his death in 1995. She continued her training in Yonkers, New York, with Roshi Bernie Glassman, from whom she received Dharma transmission. She's a founding member of the Zen Peacemaker community. Growing up in Hawaii in a family of Japanese and Portuguese ancestry, Egyoku's interest in spirituality was fueled at an early age by a fierce drive to find meaning in the context of differences. Who am I and what is my life? were guiding questions. Her passion for practice has led Egyoku to creatively explore new forms of training, including shared stewardship, a model of sangha building, council practice, exploring our individual and collective shadow, healing circles, bearing witness days, chanting a women's lineage, and group and householder koan exploration. Egyoku is the co-editor with Eve Mionen Marco of Appreciate Your Life by Maizumi Roshi and co-editor with John Daishin Buxbazen 
of the newly published editions of On Zen Practice, Body, Breath, and Mind, and The Hazy Moon of Enlightenment. A. Gyoku's new book, written with Eve, Myona, and Marco, is the book of householder koans, waking up in the land of attachments. A. Gyoku has been a pioneer in bringing Zen to life in accord with our contemporary Western culture and circumstances. Her innovations reflect a shift from hierarchical patriarchy to a more inclusive, open, community-based vision. So with that, let's plunge in and meet Roshi Wendy Egyoku Nakao. Welcome, Roshi Wendy uh, Egyoku Nakao. It's such a pleasure to be with you today. Thank you, Joe. It's wonderful to see you via Zoom. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> in this really treacherous time where there are intersecting emergencies and uh, which threaten to overwhelm us, and then on top of all of that, a, a pandemic. How are you holding up? Well, you know, I'm sitting in the midst of it. <laughs> yeah. Someone sent me a wonderful poem called The Little Duck. I don't know if you know of it. It was written in the 40s. It was written the year before I was born. Let's see if I, if I have it. May I read you just a little bit of oh, it? Oh, of course, please. Maybe I'll read the whole thing because it's short. Please. The Little Duck by Donald Babcock. Now we're ready to look at something pretty special. It is a duck riding the ocean a hundred feet beyond the surf. No, it isn't a gull. A gull always has a raucous touch about him. This is some sort of duck, and she cuddles in the swells. She isn't cold, and she is thinking things over. There is a big heaving in the Atlantic, and she is a part of it. She looks a bit like a Mandarin, or the Lord Buddha meditating under the bow tree. But she has hardly enough above the eyes to be a philosopher. She has poise, however, which is what philosophers must have. She can rest while the Atlantic heaves because she rests in the Atlantic. Probably she doesn't know how large the ocean is, and neither do you, but she realizes it. And what does she do, I ask you? She sits down in it. She reposes in the immediate as if it were infinity which it is, she has made herself a part of the boundless by easing herself into just where it touches her. I like the duck. She doesn't know much, but she's got religion. <laughs> <laughs> I, I changed the gender, of course. <laughs> oh, I, I love this. You know, she's sitting in it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right in the midst of it. Yeah. Yeah. Here we are. And uh, I'm really delighted that you began and responded to my question by sharing a poem. Uh, There's um, something that uh, 
a doctor wrote. Let's see if I can find it here. You know, in Zen we talk about no self and nothing. This is a very interesting contemporary take on that. The healthy and optimistic among us will doom the vulnerable, Dr. Landon said. She acknowledged that the restrictions like a shelter in place may end up feeling extreme and anticlimactic. And that's the point. It's really hard to feel like you're saving the world when you're watching Netflix from your couch. (laughs) But if we do this right, nothing happens, Landon said. A successful shelter in place means you're going to feel like it was all for nothing. And you'd be right. Because nothing means that nothing happened to your family and other families. And that's what we're going for here. That's wonderful. (laughs) Absolutely. We're being stripped down to the very basic things, aren't we? Yeah. You know, I was thinking about something that you wrote in in Tricycle. uh, And we're going to get to koans in just a minute. But I, I guess we're getting there right now. Um, Let's see if I can find this. Yeah. It's an article you wrote uh, about a wonderful koan that I think is apropos here. Uh, When things blow up around you, uh, the koan uh, with the words, hold to the center. So I'm going to, I'm going to read it and then just ask you to share, share your impressions of it. You know, something else was going on in the world when I was asked to write that article, and I can't remember what it was right now. It was in 2017. Can you maybe, maybe it'll come to mind as we, as we talk. <laughs> I guess Gilda Radner was right, Egyoku. It's always something. <laughs> it's always something. I just can't remember what we were going through then, but uh-huh. maybe it'll come back to us. <laughs> okay. So the subtitle was When Things Blow Up Around You. A monk asked the master, what should one do when things come from every direction? That's kind of how it feels, feels today. The master said, hold to the center. And the monk bowed. Uh, master sa- uh, the, the assembly says, um, yesterday I was on my way to a dinner in the village. the master said, and I was caught in a sudden storm with heavy rain and violent wind. So I headed for an old shrine and found shelter. When caught in a storm, find shelter. Yeah, and that's the question. What's the shelter Mm. that we all seek or find? We have Uh, to find it. We can't just seek it now. (laughs) We're in the middle of the storm. <laughs> yeah. And, and the other thing is, is that we seek and that we find and that we share. Yes. yes. Because it seems to me that this phrase, and I'm curious what you think, social distancing has something troubling about it. Um, I thought maybe we could call it physical distancing and right. social solidarity. Right. Yes. I think that's much more appropriate to what we're actually doing and experiencing. Um, It is physical distancing. You know, I just went to a chant circle this morning and we were all six feet apart. (laughs) But There we were. And it's interesting to notice 
um, some people have no idea how much six feet is. <laughs> you, you know, it's like, mm -hmm. where does it start and where does it end? It's very fascinating, I, I, I find. And, and we are in solidarity. We're all working together. Everyone throughout the world is working mm -hmm. together mm -hmm. to make sure people are safer and to protect as many people as possible. So the virus is really interesting in, in the sense that it is revealing a lot of things about how we've been living mm. and perhaps how we might live better. Right. Yeah. Right. There's, a, there's something that I, that I got over the, uh, over the airwaves uh, by someone named Kitty O'Meara. I'll just, I'll just read a little bit of it. And I think it's interesting and appropriate that we're sharing stories and poems. Uh, again, sometimes they, they, they allow us to transform and express things that just discursive language doesn't quite touch, particularly mm -hmm. during traumatic times. Right. So she writes, and the people stayed home and read books and listened and rested and exercised and made art, and played games, and listened more deeply. Some meditated, some prayed, some danced, some met their shadows, and the people began to think differently, and the people healed. And into the absence of people living in ignorant, dangerous, mindless, and heartless ways, the earth began to heal. And when the danger passed and the people joined together again, they grieved their losses and made new choices and dreamed new images and created new ways to live and heal the earth fully as they had been healed. That's certainly my hope, <laughs> living, living through this pandemic. Mm -hmm. uh, we're all, well, I don't want to speak for the royal we, but what I see is people really searching for or coming down to what's really important in my life mm -hmm. and how do I take care of that? You know, I, I see people really looking out for each other, reaching out to their neighbors, reaching out to people they haven't spoke to in years, perhaps. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I marvel at the fact that here in LA, we're suddenly housing all the homeless <laughs> <laughs> instead of trying to keep them out of certain neighborhoods. It's like suddenly we can do that within a week or two. Mm -hmm. Now, I find that quite amazing. Mm -hmm. Suddenly we're talking about money for people to get through the hard times. Well, you know, there are many people always having hard times who never get a break. So now we see, well, gosh, that's really possible, too. <laughs> all, all these things I'm looking at with just wonder, like, my goodness, you know, our priorities and our will, in a way, we've been so misaligned. Mm -hmm. And I hope this pandemic and the circumstances of it uh, will help us to really shift in a way that doesn't change back to what we were necessarily mm -hmm. along these really important times. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I've been talking to people about 
the use of the phrase, because shelter in place, I guess, came up from school shootings and things. Uh-huh. So the mayor of Los Angeles is using safer at home, which is an interesting phrase. So then you think about all the people for whom home is not a safe place. Right. And that brings up a whole other level of concern or dimension of concern. Yes. Um, so, you know, this sort of, this situation for me is just reveals so many aspects of our life. Uh, you know, we can numb out with Netflix, but if we would really, if we would really just take this uh, as a, as, as a koan, mm-hmm. as something to sit deeply into and let all of these aspects arise and be revealed mm-hmm. so that we can truly, you know, as Zen practitioners, we say we can become one with, we can, we can acknowledge and touch these, right? Just put our fingers on it mm-hmm. and let that inform us and change us. It, it's brought great curiosity for me uh, about the possibilities that could come about as a as as a human body going through, I mean the total human body going through all of this, right? It seems to me that it's as clear as day for for if we use our eyes and our hearts and our bodies that we are one body. Uh, in the recent past, there was great differences about whether to include uh, homeless and undocumented peoples in health insurance. Maybe they shouldn't get it. I know. <laughs> well, well, how about how about now, <laughs> where we're all breathing the same air? Yeah, and we're, we're so, all we're, yeah transmitters and receivers, and we literally are one body breathing. Absolutely. We can be so ridiculous as human beings. <laughs> and we're seeing how ridiculous we've been. <laughs> I love I, it that Governor Newsom, you know, is using the one body language. <laughs> exactly. Because <laughs> yeah. we're in California. <laughs> well, it's one thing when it was Jerry Brown. He did oh, some yeah. Zazen. But, 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 but Gavin Newsom, he hasn't even done any Zazen. So it's not even the province of Zen practitioners. Well, we don't know. But yeah, and also Mayor Garcetti. It's wonderful to have leaders like that, mm-hmm. you know, who are sort of speaking our language, so to speak. <laughs> right, right. And who really see the world that way. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. So I think that's very... It, it opens up tremendous possibility, really. So what would our leadership and governance be like if we really grounded ourselves in these very fundamental understanding of life? Mm-hmm. I, I think this, this opens up tremendous possibility because in some ways we're seeing it in action, at least on our state and local levels in California. If we let ourselves see it and let it in deeply, as you were saying before, because, you know, in the second of the great vows, uh, the new, new translation, b- both in the White Plum and also in the Diamond Sangha, at, le- at least I've adopted it, uh, delusions are inexhaustible. So those delusions are kind of condensing the three poisons, the greed, hatred, and ignorance, and delusion. 
you know, it, I've come to see that as, as many possibilities as there are for awakening, like you were just describing, take a complete catastrophe that we're in the middle of. What a, what a fertile place to practice and wake up. And yet those motivations are so compelling. They ha- seem to have so much stickiness. They sort of crawl back in after <laughs> we've woken up. Uh, I, I oscillate between you, the, the hopefulness, and also a bit of despair. What's it going to take? If, if this doesn't do it, really, what is it going to take for our world to wake up? And who knows where we go from here? I mean, really, right? Uh-huh. I mean, we're always sitting in it. And that's the bodhisattva vow, right? We're filling the well with snow. No matter what the condition is, and, and you know, we all know that we live in the realm of suffering. Life mm-hmm. is suffering. Mm-hmm. So no matter what the conditions are, we have this really great vow, and it is a great vow, to keep on uh, living from the view that we understand to be the most conducive, right, to, to awakening and to helping each other to be of service in our life. And I don't know if I'm just an optimist or what I am. I'm just curious about it all and how this really works and in my life and, and other people that I observe. So mm-hmm. it doesn't matter what the conditions are really, mm-hmm. right? Conditions are always pretty rotten in this world of suffering. <laughs> <laughs> Even if people are in so-called, I don't know, good conditions, Whatever, whatever that means, it's really, hey, we're all going to die someday. We're all going to get ill. There's always somebody who doesn't have enough of something. Those are the conditions, right, of the, in the, of the world that I live in. Mm-hmm. So you can call it a pandemic or whatever you want to call it. The conditions haven't changed. Don't you think? The basic conditions haven't changed. I'm not seeing it. <laughs> Maybe they're just more apparent. <laughs> that's not a reason to despair. Mm. It's where we do our work, right? Yeah. Uh, I, I don't get caught up in despair. I, I've been enjoying doing the dishes. I've been loving folding my laundry. I've been talking to friends, doing podcasts, meditating with undocumented uh, people, uh, and then folding some more laundry and sweeping the floor and thoroughly immersing and enjoying my, my daily Zen practice. Uh, but I do have to say, since we're being personal, that there are waves of despair and hopelessness, and, and I don't think I'm alone either. Uh, when we look at people say things like, um, the way the pandemic is being managed is just fine. You know, I, I wonder, I wonder about the capacity to discern and to see things as they are, because there's been an assault lately. And again, I agree with you that, uh, that it's, it's always this way, but there has been a, an assault on truth, an assault on the basic sense of reality. And um, we, we've had to work extra hard to be able to see things as they are. 
Um, and that uh, engagement, that struggle, that practice has become more precious and important than ever, it seems to me. I would agree. We do. It's hard work. We do have to work hard. <laughs> Absolutely. You will get no disagreement with me from that. And right. at the same time, I'm really glad you're folding laundry. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, it's, it's, the, it's the span, right, of, mm-hmm. of our condition. There's taking care of folding our laundry. And I, I was telling you, I have a, a mouse or a rat running around my house. So I'm busy mm-hmm. with trying to track him down. <laughs> Maybe it's a she. I don't know. <laughs> We're living together right now in the middle of the pandemic. You know, there's always something to do, uh, which is very grounding and, and so beautiful, really. Mm-hmm. And many people are out walking and looking at just the beauty of the world, which, which is also great. And then, yes, there are these uh, situations that we're all uh, intertwined with, right? And everybody's actions affects ours, and certainly the, the actions of the leaders of the nation and the world and locally affect us tremendously, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And that's what we do. That's part of the, you know, in the peacemakers, we say the ingredients. That's part of the ingredients of our life. And with that, we're going to make a meal. And what's the meal that we're going to make? Rat soup. <laughs> Rat soup. I may be there soon. <laughs> I don't eat meat, though. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think what you were talking about before, I, I, I don't want to just let it go, um, because there is something that, that develops within us through repeated immersion in what is, no, no matter how difficult. And there is almost not, it can become an overconfidence, but it's a sort of inner spiritual muscle, meditative muscle that I know, I know you've spoken about and know about and teach about and demonstrate. And I think that really is a, a blessing. And that's where practice is mobilized and... and uh, uplifts us and we're able to share that imperceptibly with with others yes i certainly hope it's it's um people catch it like they can catch a virus <laughs> it's a different kind of, it's a different kind of virus <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> like exactly. a little spiritual virus that goes around and affects people like a smile affects people you know it does. uh it's harder to smile when you've got your face mask on but um I saw you on Instagram in your face mask, by the way. Someone gave that to me. I, it took me forever to figure out how to put it on. But uh, it's an interesting thing to wear that. Uh, right. I've only worn it outside twice. But um, uh, yes, uh, absolutely. You know, for those of us who've sat for many, many years, uh, I think we really, we really have this very deep sense of you know things are as they are and i don't mean that in a flippant way and here's what i can do here's my response right now Mm -hmm. i it i always come back to that Mm -hmm. you know and i feel that's like really a key place that we should be willing to go 
is just sit right in the midst of this pandemic. Right in the midst of our situation. Mm -hmm. And I say that recognizing that, you know, there are, for some people, this is a really difficult time. A lot of people are just happy. They have more time at home and they have books to read. That's not the situation for most people, Mm -hmm. right? People are still being asked to go to work in different sectors. I just spoke to someone this morning who is a manager at Starbucks. And, you know, I asked her, can you wear a face mask? She said, no, it's not in our dress code. And, <laughs> and, and she said, and we're still handling money, right. you know, and, and, and all, of, all of these things that just day to day people are, you know, really having to, to deal with. And then again, we talked about the people who are in homes that are not safe. This is not the place we want to be. So there's that, right? Right. Uh, at least we're feeding, we're feeding people that we're doing, which is a great thing. And suddenly we all realize that 80% of the LA Unified School children come from poverty. Mm. So how aware have we been? of these conditions. These are not new conditions. They've been with us for a very long time. Again, they're being revealed. They're being revealed. For those of us who have the, the, the willingness to look. Yeah. You know, uh, I want to talk a little bit about koans and then to talk about your wonderful new book on Householder Koans, which has just come out. Traditionally, say a little bit about koans, because the work that that you've been doing before the book in koan groups and householder koan circles, uh, and and you're not the only one, but but you have been doing it and um, uh, exploring, experimenting, developing, and now writing about it. Uh, say a little bit about that trajectory and the classical use of koans and now the way that you uh, have been using them and writing about them. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I guess it is a trajectory, although we work, uh, we continue to work with the so-called traditional koans or the classic case koans. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, that's still very important in the way that we practice here at ZCLA. Oh, mm-hmm. And and it's like it's grown arms and legs, you know. <laughs> As we have sat with them, uh, I do something called public face-to-face. Uh-huh. So where I present sometimes a koan or a theme, and uh, people come up and we individually exchange about a situation and of course the situation always has to do with our very own lives Mm -hmm. and of course in the public setting the sangha is there and sometimes they'll chime in with their own wisdom the other influence i think on the on the shift or i don't know if i want to call it a shift it's more like a an um what shall i call it it's like it's growing tentacles you know Mm -hmm. (laughs) i would say it's just another manifestation um we do a lot of counsel here which is sitting in a circle and sharing uh 
uh, one at a time and listening always to ourselves and to each other. And one of the things, you know, you realize right away when you do a lot of counsel is how truly wise everyone is and how truly capable everyone is of sitting very deeply in their own lives. And so all of these things together uh, sort of led us to a more group or public exploration of, mm. of our own circumstances in which we are living. Mm -hmm. And so about four years ago now, I think, uh, Roshi Eve Marco uh, had been working with some of these uh, situations from her, her sangha in mm. Massachusetts. Maybe, maybe a couple of years before she invited me into the process of helping her with the book. And it came out of someone sharing uh, a really painful life story with her child, uh, um, where she was trying to get you know the kid to school and saying, do this, do that, hurry up, and this and that. And the kid just finally looked at her and said, you're a bitch. You know? <laughs> and yes. that word just stopped her in her tracks. You begin the book with that, right? Yeah. Yeah, so that came out of Eve's sangha, and Eve thought, well, my goodness, you know, these are our koans, hmm. and let's collect our koans. Hmm. And so it's true that we had been working in this way without calling it that for, oh, okay. for quite a while, uh, but I hadn't collected stories, but in my mind, I remembered a lot of the things, you know, that my students said that, that had a profound impact on me, or someone I practiced with who maybe shared a story that I've been actually sitting with for a very many years. Mm -hmm. So one of the koans in the book, for example, Jackie gives a gift. Uh -huh. And uh, it's a story of a true story. One of the great things about this book is that it's stories that come out of our lives right now, you know. So this uh, Jackie is not her real name, but this is what she shared with me. It's almost 40 years ago now I've been sitting with this story. And I called her up and asked her, could I have permission to use it? And she sent me, you know, her version of it, a raw, raw version of it. And so the story was that she ended up living at ZCLA uh, for a period of years. And she decided to receive the precepts from Maizumi Roshi. Hmm. And so he told her in the precept ceremony, there's a part where we bow to our parents. And so out came this story from, from Jackie that um, uh, she had landed a really great job and made a lot of money. And finally, she had some money. So she decided she would send her father $100 on his birthday. Mm -hmm. And her mother had always said, you know, don't send him money. He'll just drink it. She sent him the $100, and indeed, he went out and bought a case of whiskey, took a taxi home, had the taxi driver carry it into his room, and he drank the whole case, ended up in the hospital, and died. Mm -hmm. So for years, she carried the guilt, of course. You know, she told me she spent a lot of money in with psychiatrists, but she also carried his ashes everywhere. <laughs> Wherever she moved, he went with her. She lived for Europe in a while. It went to Europe. She told the story came pouring out of her hmm. to Maizumi Roshi, who who just listened. And when she was done, he looked at her and said, 
Now that's giving. And she told me when he said that, now this is, I don't know how many years later that this encounter takes place. Just like the last bits of suffering around it just dissolved for her. Mm -hmm. It's such a powerful, powerful, really householder koan, isn't it? Mm -hmm. And I've never forgotten the story since she shared it with me all those decades ago. Mm -hmm. And it's, I still find it very, very gripping. Because Maizumi Roshi really cut through something so deeply there, right? That really freed her from, from whatever bits she was carrying on. That's giving. So I, I sent her the book because her story is in it. Yes. And it finally arrived. And she wrote to me a few days ago. And she said, I'm sitting with the koan. <laughs> it's her koan. And I'm realizing how incredibly stingy I've been all of my life. So I'm discovering another dimension as people sit with their own stories. Mm -hmm. uh, how much deeper it's taking them and how much more they're seeing mm -hmm. about their life and themselves. So I feel this has really tremendous potential for people, really. It's gotten to the point where whenever someone's talking, I go, oh, boy, that's a great householder call. <laughs> Please send it to me. <laughs> I'm still collecting. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> I have... So, so you had mentioned, uh, Joe, excuse me, the, the trajectory, but also... The, the classic case koans, and you know, because you trained with them for years too, it's challenging to truly put ourselves in those situations in, in this particular way, mm -hmm. right? It seems still somewhat distant from us. It's like we have to make a leap to truly bring in the wisdom of, of those monks in China, for example, uh, in, into our own particulars, the particulars of our life. And the fact that they were in monasteries maybe is a block for some people because our lives are the lives of householders. Right. I mean, we're sitting in the mess of it all. <laughs> Whereas well, Eve likes to say in the imperfection of it all. I don't right. see it as imperfect. I think it's wonderfully perfect, this mess that we're living. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, some of the koans, the, the old ones, do speak to us, like the one you, you wrote about that I began with. Um, yesterday I was on my way to a dinner in the village and caught in a sudden storm. But, exactly. But, but not all of them do, and they tend not to. And in the early days of Zen, as, as, as you know, uh, you know, when emotional material came up, when we shared in Doksan, now Maizumi Roshi is occasionally the exception, and, and in, a, in a remarkable way. Yeah. But for many teachers, when students would bring them that, they'd say, go sit some more. Just go right. sit, sit with it. <laughs> as, as, as if, you know, once you sit with it, it'll just go away, and then you'll be able to do the real work. Exactly. Uh, now, yeah. uh, you know, th there hasn't been uh, focused attentiveness on emotional affliction, right. on pain, on judgments, on on the whole being reactivity. Yes, right. on the whole being that we mm -hmm. are. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. 
Exactly. The early teachers in particular just focused, as we know, on the essential matter. <laughs> on, 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 on helping us have an experience of insight. Exactly. But, but like Yamada Roshi said in his last days, this is my old teacher and my teacher's teacher, he said, now I see that the enlightened eye, the eye of emptiness, is fine, but there's other things that matter all, as much, if not more, and those are the basic human spiritual qualities, like kindness and uh, patience and courage. And of course, his enlightenment experience was, was something for the ages. So for him to come around in his last days and, and begin to nibble around the fullness of our humanity has always been incredibly moving to me. Yeah. I'm sorry, I got distracted by the word nibble since I have a rat in my house. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, what's that? Um, what's the... Uh, the 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 movie the uh, um, the cook who's a, who's a little mouse do you, do you remember the name no of that? I don't oh I'm it's sorry. like a cartoony movie oh it's, I'll have to look it up it's hilarious yeah you know, well you know it. part of the householder con too though is um, I feel that the very circumstances of our lives really can take us if we know how to let it, if we know how to allow it somehow, can take us, right, to these, ver to, to these awakening, to awakening, right? Mm -hmm. Of course it can, mm -hmm. because it's not other than that, mm -hmm. right? It's not, it's not other than that. As the hindrances abate, something becomes very clear in, in, any circumstance. Yes. Yeah. As we, you know, the word is used, befriend our hindrance, so-called hindrances. As we um, allow them in, right? And we're able to sit in the midst of it. Because those who sit know uh, from just your own experience that you become more stable and much more expansive. And our awareness heightens. So that whatever's going on, at some point, we're able to just sit still in the midst of it. And I think that's a very powerful way to live. It certainly has been for me, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Just this capacity we have to settle down in whatever the situation is that's going on. And from there, we can open up to it. You know, we, yes. I think we tried to capture that uh, when, when Bernie... Uh, use the language of the three tenets because right. basically the not knowing is that awakening that's that essential place right uh, now it's great everybody's having the experience of not knowing now for some people that's very freaky but it is kind of freaky even if it's <laughs> even if it's your practitioner until you until that becomes a place where you learn to rest right hmm. practitioners go to rest there right but we know that's not all there is. Then we've got, what have we got? We've got, we bear witness because we got the whole messy lot of life. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And these are all the, whatever you want to call it, the ingredients, the phenomena, all the manifestations of Dharma. And now look, it's, it's a virus, you know? And we are deeply listening to it, really deeply sitting in the midst of it. 
we're not trying to solve anything. We're deeply becoming one with it, immersed in it. We're becoming it, right? So we're, we're closing the gap, continually closing the gap. And from that comes, you know, what we call the third tenet, which is we take an action, right? Because the action arises from that place. Kuan Yin comes forth. Yeah, it, it really arises from there. Once you have the experience of that, I think, you know, a person can trust that much more. They can trust. Now, there's one thing that I just wanted to add, and then I want to talk about story. But there's just one thing I wanted to add to, to what you just said. I think we can come to trust our spontaneous response to things and not have to figure it out quite so much. But as we're trusting, and this is probably the only thing that I ever agreed with Ronald Reagan about, trust and verify. That's to say, we often take for granted that because we've gone through all of this, sometimes, especially the old-time practitioners, that our response is just by nature going to be benevolent. We just trust it. Oh, and, and, good luck. And maybe it's not. So good to stop and check it out and verify and trace the tracks of our conduct because so much of the motivation in that second vow, greed, hatred, and delusion, we're not aware of. We think our shit doesn't smell. Yeah. But that response may not be skillful. We say, let's see, uh, let me see if I can remember, greed, hatred, lust, envy, and delusion. We include mm. all the five because, you know, let's not leave out <laughs> lust and envy. <laughs> Very Those important. are some good ones. It's difficult and difficult <laughs> energies for people to... to um, uh, work with right right and and envy is a really interesting one because if we don't name it you know people who who have that who have a lot of envy energy uh find there's just they they don't quite know where to put it it's it's like you need to name it as one of the major poisons i I Um, couldn't agree with you more yeah and also you know we're not saying don't use your mind well Right. There's a place for intelligent thinking. <laughs> we're, we're not saying that there's no room for that at, at all. And I think the use of the word story is an interesting one, because I think, you know, in, there's story that's life affirming and enlivening, exactly. like the, the householders. And then there's my um, story that I spin in my head. Right. There's that story. Uh, There's another word for it. I can't remember right now. That's really not very helpful at all. (laughs) Sort of an an afflictive loop that just keeps (laughs) circling around. My little tape, you know. And so, uh, as we know, a lot of times in the early parts of our practice, we learn to like really see those stories and identify them. And we learned that they were really not life affirming stories. So we learned a way to work with those. But that doesn't mean that all stories, right? So the word story can also be used and is often used in a very life-affirming way. And I think for trauma survivors, for example, and many of us fall into that uh, category, the capacity to narrate our own story 
to take fragmented pieces, compartmentalized and dissociated pieces of our own human experience and allow them to come together and through words actually knit them together into a whole human being is incredibly helpful. Yes. And then there's one more meaning of a story I was thinking about as I read your book, your and Eve's book, and that is story as dream, story as deep vision of what our deepest insides actually stand for. It's not our theories about things. It's not right. our even our lineage or our tradition or who we say we are. It's what comes forward in how we live, yes. our dream. Yes, yes. It's, it's really exciting, isn't it? Hmm. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think a lot about narrative as well and what you hmm. said about when we've been through really deep trauma and suffering or hurt, uh, how important it is to create an, uh, an enlivening narrative, a life-affirming narrative, and uh, which can help in our returning to our wholeness, right? Because we've been feeling very, very fragmented um, and how important that is. There's another way that I think about narrative, and in a way the pandemic is really revealing it. It's when our the narrative we've been living, whatever it is, gets suddenly interrupted, right? It's mm. just, it's just to smithereens. Right. <laughs> to smithereens. Um, and hopefully, and that's suffering, right? When that kind of narrative is interrupted, when we really see suffering in a whole other way because of the interruption of that kind of narrative. But hopefully, as you, you, know, you remarked earlier, uh, you invoke the image of Kanzian, right? When Kanzian can't deal with the suffering of the world, that implosion that happens, and um, the manifestation of the thousand hands and eyes. Yes. And that's my hope for us, you know, through this pandemic, is that that will happen to us. Well, you know, each of us has our particular expression of our Buddha nature, and and you have found yourself in chaotic and fragmented circumstances. And you have a way of plunging in. Just like you plunged in, uh, you know, when ZCLA went south and when <laughs> Maizumi Roshi died and you were ready to begin to, you were ordained with him and now let's, let's plunge in and do our studies. And that got interrupted big time by his death. And then, years, a few years later, you know, Bernie asking you to do something you were deeply ambivalent about. Um, and so I think, Eikyoku, that you've had a lot of practice in having things blown to smithereens <laughs> <laughs> and, and living with it and making Dharma hay, maybe, you know, maybe spinning gold out of that, that funky straw in the horse manure. And I think uh, that's probably one of those remarkable jewel-like things uh, that, that you bring, that energy. Well, you know, that's interesting, because when you're living it, you don't think that way. You know? No. Uh, <laughs> so it's interesting <laughs> to hear you say that. I think what practice has shown me, really revealed to me, is, you know, I am who I am, and I'm living the life that I'm living. And with that comes certain responsibilities, right? 
Right. Uh, and I'm responsible to my lineage, my teachers. I hold that very true and dear because without them, I would not have the life I have it, in the sense, not just because of the position I'm in, but because they, they modeled, I don't like that word, but they were who they were. They living, demonstrated, yeah. They demonstrated. They, were, they led very complex, difficult lives, as mm-hmm. most people do. And, and I saw them go through all kinds of really difficult things. And how did they go through? Well, they just went through. <laughs> <laughs> and it's not that they didn't suffer. Of course, they all suffered tremendously. And the yeah. other thing is, not only did they, did they not, not suffer, but they caused incalculable suffering to others. That's true. So in listening to some stuff online and an earlier interview of you, you know, you spoke about uh, what Mayazumi Roshi did when he sat down and he said, tell me. And he refused, or maybe didn't know, or both, uh, to provide a reason. And I have mixed feelings about this, frankly. Uh, but, but there was something startling about that, that he, when he said, it doesn't really matter what the reason is. Yeah. Again, yeah. I'm, not, I'm not sure I agree, but, but his saying that was, I think, opening his heart and saying, I have done damage. I'm not going to hide out right now in the excuse of, well, it was because of this or because of that or some, exactly. you know, the devil made me do it or it was my alcoholism or whatever exactly. it is. I have hurt you. Yeah. So exactly. tell me about it. Tell me it, about it. Yeah, exactly. So that conversation with Maizumi Roshi came, uh, gosh, it was many years after ZCLA imploded. Mm. I can't, it was over 10 years after, maybe 12, 13 years or something like that. Mm. And I think you're referring to the time when uh, we were going through his mail and we came upon a letter from someone from Europe had sent a letter. And it was a letter of apology for something this man had done or not done at ZCLA when he was in charge of, you know, a lot of our money. And I think we lost all that money, you know, which can happen. Uh, and, um, and so I read the letter. Maizen Roshi did not like to read English. So he had me read all his letters. Right, so right. those of you who are listening who wrote letters, I probably read all of them. <laughs> and, uh, and so I would just read them to him, you, you know. And in this case, he, he didn't say anything. And, I, and so I said, well, that's a nice letter. And I put it away, right? So, so his remarks come, maybe I ha- we're, we continue working. And this is maybe half an hour later, right? He sits back in his chair. And he says, you know, Egyoku, about that letter. And I just said, yeah. And he said, I did what I did, and the reasons don't matter. You know, I hurt a lot of people. I discouraged so many people from practicing. And I just want you to know, I've spent my life just trying to make up for that. So that had a very powerful impact on me. And I looked at him and I said, you know, um, you know, I'm sure I'll screw up someday. And when I do, 
uh, I'm going to want to offer a reason. <laughs> it's just what you were saying. I'm going to tell you all the reasons why it happened. <laughs> don't hold me accountable. It was something else. But then I realized, you know what? They don't matter. What matters is the effect. What matters is the effect of my action, right? It took me right back down to cause and effect. Exactly. I did this thing and look at all the, all the ramifications of that, right? And I'm atoning for it. Now my work is to atone for that. And that's really how I received what he shared. Isn't it amazing when we're living in community and we have the great good fortune to have a real teacher around that it's not just the Dharma talks, it's not just the Doksan, it's not, although all of that is wonderful, but it's those, those precious moments yeah. of living a little bit of life together yes, and having that kind of transformative moment happen. Yes. Uh, I, I hope I'm, we never lose that. You know, today is hard for people to get together. Even before the pandemic, it was hard. Right. In LA, it's difficult because of the traffic, uh, as you well know, and, and people's, you know, really frenzied work schedules. And so, you know, we lose that being side by side with each other, right? On a right. daily basis. Because what happened for me in being able to do that with my Zumi Roshi and with Bernie Glassman to some extent, is one simply absorbs through every pore a particular way of being. And I know you know what I mean, because you lived with Aitken Roshi too, mm -hmm. and, and, and that sense of being in our day-to-day -to -day together with, with the community. Um, I don't know how we would create that virtually, quite frankly, because there's a, an energetic transfer it's like cell to cell that's so intimate it's so intimate you know to the point if i when i'm doing certain things i feel maizumi i'm in maizumi roshi's body doing it you know <laughs> it's just so interesting mm -hmm. it's like it's how he did it and it's how i learned to to do certain things and you carry, you carry it with you in terms of what I perceive as, as, as a really open heart and emotional accessibility, but you carry it forward in new ways, in the innovations, in the forms that you've pioneered. And now, uh, and you can share about it if, if you like, we have another couple of minutes, uh, in, in thinking about a, a possible new Zen school. Oh, that that is true. Yeah, I almost forgot about it in the midst of all our pandemic frenzy. I did want to say one thing. Sure. Uh, you know, Maizumi Roshi was always clear with us that each of us would take the Dharma forward in a way that uh, was true to our own being. We were not to become clones of his mm -hmm. or try to imitate him in any way. And that he had tried to implant the seed of Dharma, which you and I talked about earlier, and that how it would grow and manifest through each individual person and Dharma vessel would be how it, would, how it should go and how it will go. 
And he was quite at home with that. So you see such a variation among all of his successors, you know. So you mentioned the school. Well, hang on a sec. Uh, Because so Bernie Bernie said once um, uh, that you were going to be and you were a a real pioneer and an innovator in in the Maizumi Roshi tradition uh, and, uh, and, and implied that this very thing you just said that you're carrying it forward. And then he, 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 as an aside, he said, and he might not be completely in approval with everything. So he, he, it, he didn't it, like the English Dharma names. <laughs> <laughs> he told me, I still have, I, I get everything you're doing, but I still have trouble with that one. <laughs> <laughs> so as much as you're carrying that energy and individualizing it, you're also innovating and breaking a little bit. You're having a little bit of courage to be the same but different. It seems to me, I don't know, I, I'm not going to put words in your mouth, but it yeah, seems to me. Yeah, so, okay, so here's how it is. Okay. I'm sitting in the midst of this community, right. and I am listening to what is arising and what needs to be brought forth. Mm-hmm. And when I discern that, that's what I do. I'll create a form around it or I'll do whatever needs to be done to bring that forward because it's already in the field. I don't know if this makes sense. You perceive Uh, it because of your sensibilities. For whatever reason, it is your gut or your intuition. (laughs) Yeah, it's in the field. It takes your gut. Come on now, don't slither out of that. It It takes your gut. It it could be gut, but it's more like it's intuitive, really. Well, that's what I mean. Uh, Yeah. Yeah, I haven't really found a good word for gut or intuitiveness um, because it really is about being in the field and listening really deeply to what's it's a, arising. It's and, a there, dire- and there it is, you know, it's it, already there. It's already there for those who can directly perceive it yeah. beyond words and forms and materiality. And then you give it form. See? Then, you, right, then right. you give it form and then Beautiful. that's the upaya. Beautiful. And that's the so what people call innovation. Mm-hmm. But it's not like, you know, I'm just sitting there thinking about new ways to do things. It's not <laughs> like that at all. <laughs> oh, those little lotus flowers grow from the from the thick fertilizing muck. It's it, yeah, and that's exactly what we're always listening to, right? It's the same with the pandemic. We could just deeply listen to it and allow ourselves to be in it. Uh, really amazing things will will be realized by all by all of us you know how we carry that forward will depend on all kinds of circumstances rapidly changing circumstances um but it's like it's such a fertile field and so that's really how i work with with the community here and so just briefly since you mentioned the school um because we've been working with this way you know in this way for over 20 years now at the zen center um you know, we realize that we we have um, come up with various upayas that we have found very, very helpful to ground our practice, to, to wake us Just up. Just for our audience, upaya uh, means skillful means. Right, right. And to help us really live the fullest life that we can in service of others. Mm-hmm. And so we decided we would, a school being our style, right? As we know, the Zen word for school is more like a like a family style. So we want to 
give our style a little bit more of a framework to hang on, I guess you might say. Uh -huh. So that's kind of the impetus for this school. We call it the open palm. Palm because we have a big kanzian with the open palm, the no fear mudra right. on our grounds. And also because, you know, we have palm trees everywhere. Right. <laughs> you know, right. This is LA. <laughs> we call it the open palm uh, Zen school. Yes. We'll see where we go with it. You know, it's just uh, very much a, a creative time for us. And um, we're just going to see where it where it goes. And it may not go anywhere. Who knows? It doesn't matter. The creativity is what is of interest to me. <laughs> well, I can't think of, uh, although I'd like to continue, I can't think of a better spot uh, to end our conversation today. We've been talking with Roshi Wendy, Egoku Nakao, the head teacher and head priest at Zen Center of Los Angeles. Thank you so much, Roshi, for your time. Thank you so much. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash BeHereNow today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash BeHereNow.